Hey everyone, this is Stefan Miller, and welcome to The Forever Student. Thank you so much for being here and making the decision to become the best you. Today, we have a very special guest. I know her as an incredibly kind, loving, hardworking individual that thinks just a little bit different than anyone else. You might know her as a powerful female entrepreneur, producer, podcast host, and cultural innovator. Reem Hamid, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. This is super exciting. It is. And what a wonderful space. This I know. This is so cool. It is beautiful. And uh, today we're going to tackle a bunch of topics, uh, but I wanted to jump straight in and want to talk about your energy. I always mm. feel that you have this constant high and positive energy energy within you and around you. Um, is this something that you always have? Is this something that you are? Um, no, it's a practice. So uh, I am a product of the Arab diaspora, a product of violence and war. And I'm also a product of a very violent home. And uh, I have, and I speak very openly about this. I um, currently have, uh, you know, anxiety and I do suffer from a very mild uh, depression. So the practice of being happy and the practice of creating a space that's positive and that encourages a high energy is a part of my survival, a part of my survival in life. I need it to survive. And it is a practice that I've honed over many, many years and uh, through a lot of hours in counseling and a lot of um, moments of heartbreak and recovery. So it's not something that is natural, I don't think. I think it's something that I practice every single day. I think that's beautiful because I think especially in this region, speaking about your feelings this openly and talking about how you're a work in progress, you've been to therapy and you seek professional help is often something that we don't speak about enough. Definitely. Um I think one of the ways to really improve your happiness and, and kind of straying away from the negative thoughts is surrounding yourself with happy people, yes. positive people. And I think that you do that very, very well. Um, but when it comes to the negative aspects in your life, when it comes to negative people in your life, how do you then either avoid that or deal with it effectively? Um, for most of my, when I was, uh, I'm 36 now. So I've had a, a quite a, a I'm, I'm young in some ways and very, very old in other ways. Um, but I've had quite a few years of stumbling to please people. I am inherently a people pleaser. I've been, I've been diagnosed <laughs> as a people <laughs> pleaser. And, uh, one of the things that I learned really quickly when I was, um, the first thing that happened that marked uh, a, a, a decision to keep happy people around me was I had gone to law school. I'd made it in. So I was one of four Arabs in my law school. I went, I, I managed to get into the most amazing Canadian law school. I think we were second, if not first um, at the time. And I didn't feel like I belonged there. I didn't feel like 
for example, if they had come up to me during my graduation and said, hey, sorry, we made a mistake during your admission. I'd be like, yeah, totally. I get it, bro. Like I would not, I didn't, I felt like a complete imposter there. And part of that was because I felt like the people around me, even though they were all great, Canada's finest, you know, um, a lot of them were very sad and I was feeding off that sadness. It took me a while to realize okay, number one, my happiness and mental health is paramount. That's going to be my first line of defense against, you know, if I was going to make it in the world. The second is I have to accept that even with people I love, including family and friends, there will be times where we're not good for each other. And that has to be okay. And the way that I can approach that with love is first of all, to nip it in the bud and to have an honest conversation about my own experience. And uh, so for ex a perfect example is, you know, my relationship with my father. My father and I have, uh, you know, the, uh, we're, we're great sometimes and sometimes we really are contentious. And in the moments where he says things that are hurtful or, you know, he's a product of the same, I'm a product of him and therefore he's a product of the world that he's shown me. I know that sometimes he won't be good for me. And during those times, I'll just say, dad, you know, I'm just going to take some time. I love you, but I'll be back. And I love you, but I'll be back has been this practice of taking space and telling people that I love you, but I can't do this right now. I can't engage with this right now. It's not good for me. And during times when I've decided to keep my mouth shut and for the purpose of business or for the purpose of, you know, peace in the family, I've just proceeded. I ended up getting more hurt and more damaged because I should have just said, this isn't good for me right now and honored what I was feeling, which is really sad or negative. You know, I don't believe that people are 100% good or 100% bad. I think we have frequencies and we fluctuate. And at times we're just not gelling. And sometimes space is all that's needed and time. And then you come back and you're like, holy, I love you. <laughs> you know, I, oh shit, I love you. Um, so yes, I think the way that I've learned to manage that is a self audit and then an honest conversation and a promise to give space, but then to return. So you have to come back or else then you've just cut that person off. And I don't think that that's a good thing either. I think you need to deal with it. Yes. Um, instead of suppressing it or avoiding it. Yeah. And I think one of the hardest things is to recognize what is good for you, who is good for you, yes. and what or who is bad for you. And again, dealing with that. Because as you mentioned, one of the hardest things to do is cutting off people or um, avoiding people that are important to you yeah. or that have been important to you and have played a significant role in your life, but now they don't anymore or now they have a negative influence on your, on your life in general. And I think that we also have to accept that we are... Um, we are beings that are, that are, we, we feed off each other. So one of the practices in our office is if I know that you're going through something really difficult, you have the right to take a mental health day and go ahead and do what you need to be okay, because that's going to like, almost like a toxin in the water, it's going to begin to spread. And, um, the, it usually begins with me when I hear someone who is not grateful. Mm -hmm. So the moment I hear, we all complain. I'm not, it's not a complaint. Like sometimes you just need to vent out a little, a little complaint, but there's something about being ungrateful for me 
that is a telltale sign of, okay, I need to separate from this person for just a little bit because they need to work through something and I can't go down that path with them. It's too dangerous for me. How would you then distinguish between someone being ungrateful and someone just complaining or venting? I think that ungrateful, there's a sense of entitlement to it and a deep, it's an, it's like, it's a deep feeling that I feel now, which is when someone says, for example, um, they they demand something but are not willing to work for it mm. or if something has been taken from them but they don't see the other the other side so it's just like oh you know and this is my 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 the classic thing is you know and they attacked us and we were attacked and we you know our our country was blown this is the iraqi kind of you know narrative now right. and i've just said i i just can't hear this anymore i need to know how to rebuild I cannot live in the paralysis. Yes, it's happened. It is an absolute truth, but I can no longer live under its uh, in paralysis of it. I need to remember history. I need to tell history and I need to make history. And I cannot do that if you're complaining right. <laughs> in and, front of me right now. But then how do you encourage people to think differently? Like if someone is in that rut of complaining or ungrateful or feeling entitled, I think one of the difficult things is addressing that yeah. in a very loving way. Loving way. How would you go about that? My first attempt was um is from Tim Ferriss who says, if it was perfect, what would it look like? And that gives you a way to reshape. And if this person cannot see that it could ever be perfect, because it's an imagination. Your imagination can make a million things happen. A hundred thousand things, a universe of things. And if you can if this person cannot see past this moment, then I need to say, well, I can't. And or if it's um, chronic, if it's chronic, this this discussion is chronic. I can't save this right now. Mm. So um, a really good example is, you know, somebody who's heartbroken. Uh, you know, obviously there's the stages to mourning that I believe people go through when they break up with someone. Um, some of my friends will turn around and be like, this really, really hurts. I need to play ball. Can you come out with me? Can we go and just run? And these people are clamoring out of their sadness and trying to find new memories and new ways. And then there are other friends of mine who hate relationships. The moment they break up with someone, it's as though every relationship sucks and this is terrible and I don't want to see love right now. And I'll say, that's fine, but I'm in a relationship that I love very much. And that's going to be some, and, and many relationships that I, my friends and, you know, I'm in a, in a way in love with the world and I can't let anything phase that. So I'll say you can be sad for the next two days, but then after that, we're going to do something happy. And if you, you're, you can give your sadness its space, but I hope you understand I can't be there. It's too much for me. And more often than not, when I've had the courage to say that, it's worked. It's been like, they'll be quiet for like a day and a half. And then suddenly like, yo, do you want to go work out? And it's like, okay, yeah, sure. Let's do it. You want to go see a movie? Um, giving myself and people's space to be sad is is so important because we are allowed to be sad, but you have to give it a framework in your life. It cannot be all-encompassing because it will take up, it's like liquid. It'll take up all the space you give it, mm. you know? 100%. I want to backtrack to something you said before about law school. Yeah. Oh yeah, that. <laughs> so what I'm very curious about is, uh, because at this moment in time, find you're 36 and... And, and I think to the outside view, you've kind of got it all figured out. Uh, like you're on your path and you've sort of found your purpose. But obviously you were on a very different path beforehand. Yeah. Law school. And my question is, one, how did you 
get on that path? And then this, the follow-up question would be, when did it change? Yeah. So um, when I arrived in Canada, I arrived in Canada in 97. I was 16 years old and uh, I'd come from sanctioned Iraq. So my family was living, my, fa- my father's Iraqi, my mom's Filipino, and uh, Iraq became unbearable. Post-war, the, the many war, a war happened after we left, but that, that time where there were sanctions and people were suffering, my father couldn't imagine a future for his children there. So like many Arab parents, he sacrificed everything that he had to get us to the country that would give us the freedom and the uh, and and the and the opportunities that he believed his daughters and his son at the time could you know could could have when i arrived in canada i had in me a knowledge of war a knowledge of 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 this um of of be, being disempowered an understanding that as a woman as an arab woman my voice was very different than a western woman and this began to play out in my life in so many different ways uh, when my parents got divorced, my my father was very abusive. And many, by the way, this is something that maybe not for this podcast, but a, a discussion I'd love for you to have with many different Arab women. Uh, the men who have seen war have post-traumatic stress syndrome. They bring the violence into their homes, not knowing how to solve it. And with so few avenues to free themselves from the violence, that is the consequence of war because that's generational. And that happened in my house. So my mother, not really knowing, knowing as much as she could, um, tried her best to protect us. And eventually the violence escalated and we got, my parents got divorced. In that negotiation, my mom gave up everything. My dad, who had a great lawyer, <laughs> had this wonderful upper hand uh, on the situation, leaving me to become the new father of my household. So I was 16. I worked. I and that was, I wouldn't trade that experience for the entire world because I engaged with a network in the entertainment industry. I worked in a cinema. I cleaned washrooms. I was a waitress. And it taught me that education was going to save me because everybody that seemed comfortable was in, an, in, 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 in the you know, world I'd worked in. They seemed to have an education and a really good one. And I wanted to advocate for people because I'd seen war. And where my mother comes from in the Philippines is this impoverished little town. She's a miracle, my mom, you know? And I thought, okay, well, if I become a lawyer, not only will my parents be satisfied because you know the Arab, uh, you know, the Arab rule, doctor, lawyer, engineer, (laughs) like all of these (laughs) exceptions are a failure. So I was like, okay, well, I could become a lawyer. I couldn't become a doctor. It was not something I imagined. And an engineer was just something far beyond what I, I didn't know what it was. So I said, okay, I, I can speak, I can write, I can become a lawyer. And I fought tooth and nail to get into law school. I applied, I, I made myself, I figured out, I looked at, I'm like, okay, this is a system. I need to get in. And I figured out a way through an affirmative action program to get in to this school system. There were no lawyers in my family. There were, I, I didn't know anything about Canadian universities. I didn't know anything. I learned everything from the ground up, talking to people, figuring out how their parents had done it, how they'd done it. And when I got in, I was like, oh my God, I got in. And I remember how I cried when we got the letter and it was a whole thing. And then I, I incurred a lot of debt to get in, as many students do in Canada. And um, when I got in, I sat down and there was a new dean at our university, an Arab dean. So it was like, oh, you know, I'm in, I'm in, this is it. 
And I looked around and it was a sea of like wonderful people, Canada's brightest and best, he said. And the first words out of his mouth, and I, I still, I told Omar, you know, my boyfriend, he was, he was, uh, and God bless him, he knew me. When I got in, he said, why are you going to law school? He's like, it's so not you. And I was like, no, 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 it is me. Like, I'm an advocate. I'm intelligent. I, you know, women like me don't make it. And I always thought about this. Arab women and Filipino women like me don't make it into Canadian law schools. I have to be there. It's like you were just proving a point. I was proving a point to nobody. Do you know what I mean? To this nobody, to this. And I was studying political science and I was doing activism and I was in my element, you know. And, uh, the, the dean looked at all of us and in his thick accent, he had this Arabic accent, which was home to me in many ways. He said, you are Canada's cream of the crop. You are the brightest and best and you are going to shape the Canadian legal landscape and therefore shape Canada. And that's when my heart kind of sunk and I was like, I don't think I belong here. Once, I don't know if that was me or if that was my insecurity or if that was, and I moved very quickly from the front row to the back row crew wow. where I just felt like an absolute imposter and as the years went by, I went through many hardships in law school and realized that I had to honor who I am. And who I am was not some, I couldn't see myself articling, which is the process of interning and getting a job in a law firm, working my way up to become partner. And then I saw the way that women were treated if they wanted to have families or I I just couldn't find heroes. And I don't know I don't blame the industry because my amazing friends are now shaping, truly shaping the Canadian landscape. I just didn't see that as my journey. And I had to honor that. So I finished law school because I have a tendency to finish what I started, even if it kills me. Like Eve, I was by the end of it, I didn't even want to go to graduation. I went for my mom and I, I couldn't care. I didn't care. And it was so, and I was very depressed. I was crying every day. I was like out of place, out of sorts. And then when I um, came to Dubai, I applied for internships and I got into an internship here in Dubai. Once again, I came to the office. I cried every day. I'm like, what is real estate? Who cares? And I was doing, to be honest, I believe who we are as people on finding your purpose, who we are as people always fights to shine through even in the darkest moments of our lives. So there I was in a law school that I didn't understand why I was in. I thought I was fighting for a cause and I was just feeling like I was constantly getting silenced. And then my law school showed me light and I worked in an amazing program in the Philippines that protected uh, girls of who were victims of the child, child sex tourism. We worked on their legal cases. We defended them. I worked with some of the most remarkable lawyers in the Philippines, giving back to my mother's country. And um, there were girls as young as eight years old in these in in this uh, protection program i felt like oh my god i'm alive again and then i went back to the law school and i'm like but these this this these programs if i go to the philippines and i work i will be am i really changing the world because i can't move beyond these walls and so my life journey now has been to facilitate and to build businesses because i come from a line of entrepreneurs and when it changed was when I was here in Dubai. I cried for like easily, I would say 45 days straight. And then finally I was like, I just can't be this sad anymore. I was broke. I was like, it broke me. I'm too weak. I can't do it. I am done. And do you feel that now you now you are on a path or now you have found your purpose or your calling? Um, I feel like I'm more on the path to it. I know that I am an, a businesswoman at heart. I am an entrepreneur at heart. I believe the Arab world will be one towards peace 
through entrepreneurs. And I believe that um, the women who shape the Arab world will be entrepreneurs. I genuinely believe that. I feel the word, unfortunately, has been kind of spun in the media to mean something very different. But I believe people who have a dream that start a business that like that feeds directly into their communities. Those are the people that I think will change the world. And I'm my purpose now is to facilitate that in any way that I can. I think that one of the, the the problems with our society today is that we have this path that's laid out before us. Yeah. Uh, which is why you went to law school yes. in the first place, right? Um, and it's and it's simply because there's so many different voices and influences in our life. I think from you know the time you go to pre-KG and first grade to 12th grade, then you go to college or university and then you get married. And yeah. like, these are just such common sense steps that it often distracts us from following our true path. Yes. And like you said, it, it, it does try and shine through. It uh, but always we, does. But we often either just suppress that and take the road that's a bit more comfortable yeah. or the road that where we're more accepted. Literally of least resistance. Least resistance. Right. The least amount of friction. And so your so, mom's not upset and your family's not upset and you're, you know. 100% or your, or your friends or your teacher or your boss, whatever it might be. Like, I feel like often we take the decisions to please others or to impress others or make others proud. Yeah. Um, Again, going back to you being a people pleaser, you yeah. were a people pleaser. Oh, I still have traces. Like, you still like, have I don't traces. Think, I think for me, I don't think it's ever going to stop, but I've tried to put boundaries around it. And I think I think it's okay to an extent. Yeah. Right? But my question to you is, how do people go about letting that light shine through? Like, how do you go about saying, let me chase my purpose? Because one of the things that I really struggle with is that you have a lot of people who don't like their current situation, whether it's their job or their what they're studying or, or their marriage yeah. or whatever it is. But after they work their nine to five, they go home and they watch Netflix or yeah. they, you know, they don't really make an effort to Im- improve their current situation. And, and from my side, I always say like, what are you doing from six to 12? Oh yeah. Uh, because I understand you need your nine to five to pay your debts or pay your bills or feed your kids or whatever it might be. But what would you suggest on kind of taking that first step in terms of letting that light shine through? So I just want to, and this is something that I want to kind of, uh, I don't I, I don't believe that entrepreneurship is for everyone. I think people sometimes mistake me, my, my happiness and, and passion for it, that I think everyone should quit their job and just start a business. Hardly. I believe that um, a lot of people are in the right place in a comfortable job with upward mobility and very, very secure in that space because that gives you a clear head to think about the things that you love. Um, But there is something that I will not condone, which is if you don't make space for the things that you love in your life, it's almost like if you don't vote, you have no right to to talk about the current politics or state of affairs. It's a good way to compare it. You know, and so for me, 15 minutes a day, if that's genuinely too much to ask, to dedicate to the thing that you love. And I think people want these big, not everybody, but I think there's a lot of hustle. I call it hustle porn on the internet. It's this, you know, work, you know, post all the time and work and quit your job. And, you know, you'll be a millionaire. Look at my Ferrari and all this stuff. And I just think that's equally, um, that's that's equally toxic. I believe that life and happiness is grounded in simple things. 
So what that means for me is, and my sister is really a person who practices this. My sister believes that sometimes watercoloring is just all you've got to do today. And that's happy, you know? Um, if somebody makes you happy, then make space for them in your life. Um, if you love to write, then take 15 minutes a day to write. I don't believe that it's supposed to be, you're going to be the next JK Rowling, but rather give yourself those 15 minutes a day to write. Um, and the other thing I believe in finding your purpose is to do a mental health audit. You need to do a mental health audit. Am I sad all the time? How often am I sad? Being sad is not a bad thing, but if you're sad 90% of the time, something's got to change because you cannot possibly find your purpose with that much toxicity in your life. A mental health check, a social health check. Who are the people around you? What do they say to you? What are their words? The way they speak about themselves. Um, you happen to know a lot of my circle of friends. One of the things that I notice about the people that I keep my that I keep around myself, it's not they're 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 insecure sometimes, but they're confident in the things that they know because they're confident in their love for themselves. Self love is an elusive term that's being tossed around as though you can find it hmm. around the corner. No, self-love is a constant practice. You will never fully love yourself. I don't believe that. But I believe you're going to, you should give it a, a good like lifelong try, you know? Um, and then finally, when you do nothing, what are you doing? Are you daydreaming of flying a plane? Or are you like when you like, Eid is a wonderful time. We, are happen, we happen to be recording this during Eid. And yesterday and today, it, you know how someone said, are you, you're recording this podcast how can you work today? And I'm like, oh, no, 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 this isn't work. This is what I love. That's so you true. know, this is no, no, not one moment today was I like, oh, I got to work today. No, no, this is what I love. I love to share. I love to speak. I love to spend time with my friends. And um, you'll notice from the Dukan show, we've made it, we've made things fun. So what do you do for fun? Genuinely. And uh, if what you do is drink alcohol for fun, then you need to do that mental health audit. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I think that this is always a cyclical, you know, people think, and, and I've learned this, I think people want a big purpose, a really big worldly, I want to make a dent in the universe. And quick. And quick purpose. Um, but my mother, who is, an, who after she, she and my father got divorced, she ended up restarting her nursing career. She works at an old folks home and she is that wonderful woman that helps you as you're in palliative care, as you go to God or to the universe or, you know, uh, into the ground, as some people like to say. And uh, my mom says, Reem, what people want to say is that they made other people happy, that they are happy and healthy and comfortable. And that if they have children, that their children are happy and healthy and comfortable. And what I guess all of that means is love so deeply I don't believe, I believe that the greatest purpose is found in the simplest things. As cliche as that sounds, every self-help book will tell you, but you will read a hundred of them and still not, like mm. you still won't register. <laughs> um, what do you do when you're bored, when you're not happy? Some people write, some people daydream, some people go for runs, some people walk, some people do nothing. And I don't, I believe there's no such thing as nothing. But if somebody comes home from nine to six and then from six to 12, just Netflixes it out, then they're not seeking their purpose. They're just complaining that they don't have it. Whereas 15 minutes to write three things you're grateful for 
to help clear the path to find, to find what you're, if you write three things that you're grateful for every day, which I've done for the past six years, wow. uh, you'll find my, my journals filled with, I'm grateful for film and art and people, the Arab world and my friends. I'm grateful for the things that now are the pillars in my life. So I think maybe that's a practice that people can employ. So I think uh, I think what you're saying is is also just a just a very good first step because it's it's not taking a huge amount of time no. time out of your day. It's literally just dedicating 15, 30 minutes. Yeah. Um, whether it's to something you love or something that you know can kind of improve your mental health, your physical health, yeah. whatever it might be. From your side, do you have daily practices or routines that really add value to who Reem is? Yes, I do. Could you elaborate on that? So um, the first is the the three things that I'm grateful for. It's a really simple, my, my friend Mavis Vaz, who's a doctor in Australia now, wonderful, a wonderful girl from high school. She said, writing a diary in a journal is just so exhausting. I can't do it, right? And I'm a journal, I'm a writer. I love to journal, but I, she's right. You fall off the wagon. It becomes too daunting to get back on. So she just has a calendar on her fridge and she just writes three bullet points that she's grateful for every wow. day. And it becomes this journal of the things that she loves in her life. And uh, I actually employed that. And eventually the calendar became a notebook. And eventually now it's just notebooks filled with the three things that I'm grateful for. If you don't know where you are, look at yesterday's or the day before or the day before and you'll always find something to be grateful for. Do you go back on them a lot? I do, I do because I get lost a lot. I, I do um, as a leader and I've taken, it's taken a long time for me to accept that I'm a leader, but I am. Um, you get lost a lot because the path that I'm on, especially in entrepreneurship, is, has never been paved before to create regional um, you know, businesses that shape the way that the narrative of the Arab world is built is not something that anybody has taken responsibility for lately. So um, I don't really have a, a, a roadmap and sometimes I get lost. So I look at those things that I'm grateful for. The other thing is I happen to be, so uh, I went, I did Lewis Howe's School of Greatness years ago. The first, I think I was part of the first consortium, like the first or second class. And one of the things that he did as a practice that I believe everybody in the universe should do is write down a happy day, 7 a.m., 6 a.m., and write down every hour, imagine the happiest day and what would that be? And it should be a day in the life of that you're constructing. And I wrote that I would like to enter my own office, that I would wake up next to the man I love, that I would have, that I would work out, that I didn't smoke. Because at the time I was writing, I was a smoker. Mm -hmm. And I wrote actually on my happiest day, I'm not a smoker. So I should stop. Like it was just one of those things that helped, you know, jumpstart the good things. This is a life audit. And I wrote that I wanted a business, that I wanted to speak, and that in the evenings, I wanted to spend the evenings doing things I love with my friends. And eventually, my world, when you state something so solidly, the world moves to make it happen. It manifests. Positive or negative. So you have to be, you know, really aware of how powerful you are. And then uh, the final thing that, not final, so every day I make a point uh, to laugh with my friends. Mm -hmm. Even when we're angry at each other, even there have been days lately where things have been sort of 
um, you know, quite difficult emotionally. And I make a point to find the friends that make me laugh and, you know, laugh with them. This is so healing as a practice, but it's also so community building as, uh, you know, it reminds you that you, okay, nothing is that serious. And you put things in perspective. It does really, really, really does. Especially because, you know, a lot of people in expat countries don't have family with them. So your friends become your family. And if you're privileged enough to have your family, sometimes it, they're not the people you would want to go to with your problems because they might be, re, you might be responsible for them. So having friends that you can just laugh with, baseline laughter is really, really part of my daily, like daily ritual. Mm. There isn't a day in my life where I don't do that. That's amazing. Yeah. Because I'm just thinking back on, on my last seven days and then thinking about how much did I really laugh? Yeah, yeah. Think about it. It's actually quite, yeah. And and uh, if, so for example, if I'm going through a depressed a, a depression, everyone in the office and everyone in um, my friends, they know no sad movies. There are rules like no sad songs, no sad movies. No, like I'm so vulnerable. Nothing to trigger it. Nothing to trigger it. But also no need for that energy. No need for it, you know? Maybe there is a purpose for that sadness. It helps us negotiate with it. But I'm not, capable in this moment of dealing with it. So I'll say things like Akawi's perfect. He'll bring up news bites like, you know, political, heavy duty, we are at war and news bites at 11.45 p.m. I'm like, no, no, this is a 9 a.m. problem. <laughs> like, this is a 9 a.m. problem. <laughs> you tell me funny things now, only funny things. And he gets it and he makes me laugh. And I think that's something that you have to also know is that you can handle some things, but not all the time. And the world has enough to make you feel sad, you know, so. And I think uh, let's use that as a as kind of a transition between um, the amazing practices you do on a daily basis, which I think are very, very important. I'm, yeah. I'm a heavy believer in routine as yes. well. Um, I feel, you know, being in control of your day, at least a few hours a day. Yes. Um, really helps you uh, be happy, be productive, be energetic, etc. Um, but just to turn away from that now, you, you've addressed depression a few times. Yes. And I think, you know, just looking at, at my circle of friends, looking at uh, the people that I interact with a lot, the depression, anxiety are very present. Yes. I think the first thing I'd like to ask you is when it comes to anxiety specifically, how would you define it as Reem? Because I think everyone kind of has their own version of it. Um if you've dealt with it and if you could give listeners a way on how to deal with it. So my anxiety manifests itself in uh, an almost an extreme um, nervousness in me. So I, it, its first manifestation actually is negative self-talk. So I begin to say things like, Reem, you're an idiot. You know, I actually say those words to myself. The, I'm not always self-aware enough to notice that I'm doing it. But when I do, I'm like, okay, what are you anxious about? Because there's no reason for you to speak to yourself like that. You've you, been, but you, you're aware of that I, now. I'm more, more aware, aware of, of it, but I can't say I'm 100% aware. No, okay. because even OT will point out who's my best friend, will point out your body image. Why are you talking to yourself like that? Like you're, you know, women, and I don't, I, I do really, um, I compare our news, our, our Instagram feeds the things that are marketed to me versus marketed to the both the guys is so different. And for me, my feed tells me, you need plastic surgery, you are old, 
you know, and then you get into, there's a whole bunch of things that you don't even notice you're absorbing sometimes. And I can only imagine what a two-year-old, you know, as she grows up is absorbing. So for me, when I look at things like that, I become anxious. It manifests itself as anxiety. The word anxiety, so I define anxiety, uh, medically, I believe it's defined as uh, a heightened sense of uneasiness from things that are real or not real. And um, the, you know, there's so many, there are so many, uh, there's so much literature about it online, which is amazing. Uh, but when I was 16 and I didn't have the internet, I did not know where to go. And so I went to a doctor and I was telling him, I have no, I cannot focus at school and I'm an A plus student. I need you to fix this right now. Like I couldn't even imagine dropping to an A. It was just freaking me out. And I couldn't focus in class. My eyesight would blur in and out. And then I then the panic attacks began because the inevitable uh, journey is that you will start to feel pains and aches in your chest. For this is me, anyways. But it seems like I've talked to people and they um, have some. They they feel some similarity. Um, panic as though you want to flee, like you want to fly out of here. You want the hole to open in the ground. You want to go. Um, paralysis. I experience. Uh, uh, starting from scratch, who is an amazing DJ, spoke on our show about how he could not move doing this thing he'd been doing for 25 years. Um, anxiety, it manifests itself as this extreme uneasiness in different ways. For me, I feel like the walls are closing in and I need to leave whatever. Lo- I'm f- like as though I'm under attack. Fight or flight is in mm. full effect and I need to go. And then I begin to isolate myself, which is a really odd thing because I am your textbook extrovert. I am textbook. I feel rejuvenated when I am around my friends. I am happier when I go out and we work out in a group. Uh, that I may not like uh, team sports, but I certainly love seeing people working out, which is why I do well in gyms and in... So I couldn't imagine when I'm like, oh, no, no, I'm just going to spend, you know, tomorrow and the day after in bed. Okay, immediately, that's a telltale sign that I have, I'm going through something. I need help. And um, then... So how I'm dealing with it, which is, by the way, it's almost something I had to accept that I'm never going to, it's never going to go away because it's a part of my biological makeup. I don't know if it's inherited from the war and the displacement and the abandonment, but does it matter? Like at first I wanted to know where it came from. So maybe I could find a solution for it. Mm. But then one day, one of the wonderful counselors that I was speaking to was like, yo, does it even matter? Who cares where it's from? You know what it does. And it's been doing it for the two years that I I was speaking to him. And uh, finally, he's like, you just have to disconnect from the violence and just admit that now you're a bit, you're a bit broken, but you know, you can still use a broken mug. It's not just completely done. He's just, just, there's just a bit of a crack in you. (laughs) He's like, you're not shattered. Hmm. And I'm like, all right, okay, I can work with that. And um, now the way I manage it is to be really honest with myself and do that self audit. My anxiety is a part of my burnout, by the way. So burnout and the constant uh, need to perform, my anxiety fuels that, which is why there is, I, there is, there was a point in time where I knew I could outwork you. I may not be the smartest in the room. I may not be the prettiest in the room. I may not even be belong there, but I'll work you and your whole family under the ground. Mm-hmm. I will make sure that I work the hardest that you've ever seen. And the problem is society gave me, uh, it was self-gratifying. I worked hard to the point that I was burnt out and it it gave me, it, it, it thanked me for it. My business did better, did well. Um, 
I wasn't setting a good example and I wasn't being loving towards myself, but society has a way right now of like really pushing us beyond our boundaries. And it's up to us to regulate, to be critical, you know? So I, sorry, I realize I'm a bit tangential on this one. Anxiety, for me, I recognize it's telltale signs um, for in, as it manifests in my life. And then as soon as I begin to see it happen, I pull the reins back and I have a conversation with myself. There's a wonderful TED Talk about a woman who lives with um, the voices in her head. Mm-hmm. In most Western societies, she would be heavily medicated. Um, and she is, I believe, schizophrenic. And she spoke in her TED Talk about how she said she speaks now to the voices in her head because they appear as part of her anxiety. If someone says, you're going to get murdered as soon as you leave this house, which is a voice in her head, she'll say, thank you. I know it's scary out there, but I'm going to go out and let's see what happens. Wow. So there is a conversation you can have with yourself. And I wish more of us had conversations with ourselves. And I wish that there were more acts. There was a lot more access, especially in the Arab world, to resources that helped us have these conversations. So I think internal and external conversations would be super helpful. A hundred percent. And doing that self-audit, that mental health check. Am I feeling hungry, angry, lonely? Am I tired? Am I, what am I actually feeling? Because anxious is just anxious, but there's actually, I'm anxious because is what you need to figure out. And I think it's also limiting, we spoke about triggers earlier. Yes. I think there's a lot of triggers out there nowadays that we might have not had before. Yeah. I think when you spoke about Instagram, for instance, I think we we spend a lot of time on it, firstly. So we're absorbing a lot of uh, people's lives, but yes. we're absorbing their highlight reels. Yes. Right? It's not actual life. Um, it's someone posting a picture of their best possible life, whether it's real or not. And we compare our current state to that. Yes. Which... Apples for apples, it doesn't stand a chance, right? It doesn't stand a chance at all. And we don't stand a chance because this is not what the person imposed on us. We imposed that. We created this false sense of a universe where this person is better than you in some way. So I think based on on the advice that you've given, which I think is very helpful, another one from my side would be limiting those triggers. A hundred percent. Kind of controlling your environment as much as you can for the better. Whether it's surrounding yourself with the best possible individuals focusing on the things that make you happy, which we talked about before as well, whether it's 15 minutes a day, and then limiting these triggers that, or your environment that really gets to you in that sense. A hundred percent. And I I, uh, I will, I'll share with you later the WhatsApp that I'd sent the guys saying, guys, for my mental health, I need to step away because we are um, D-list celebrities, if you will. <laughs> like we are somewhat public figures in the culture space, uh, a role I take very, very seriously and I have a lot of pride in. And a big part of that role is to be engaged and online in social media. And I had to write a really difficult, speaking of managing, you know, uh, anxieties and negativity, I had to write a really difficult message to my best friends to say like, guys, I need your support. I'm not going to be on Instagram a lot. And, you know, and OT, I think, took that the hardest because we were very much engaged in pushing Dukkan as far as it could go. But it was really hurting me in some way. And I couldn't even figure out what it was. I just knew it wasn't good for me. And did it help you? Definitely. It That space, many people will tell you uh, a digital detox is now part of your mental health um, 
care, your mental health package, if you will. And uh, it doesn't mean you leave it forever. It doesn't mean, but you have to find the ways that you are allowed to engage with it. It's just like sugar. I don't believe you should never have sugar. I believe you should control the manner in which you consume sugar. And that way you can have it, but it won't affect your life so very negatively. Mm. And uh, did like digital consumption on social media platforms is equally um, needing to be regulated. And it's self-regulation. Don't expect the platform to do it for you. Don't expect anyone to do it for you. You have to know when, at some point, you figure out how much sleep you get and you figure out, you know, and it's the same thing with your... your I I think to that point, being attached to it um, is a big one because can you go a day without being on Instagram? Um, For a while, I did. Now I think I'm back slightly into that addictive space where I'm on it every day. Um, but I try to control it. I need. I try to keep it to an hour a day or so. And that's even a lot of time, by the way. Um, but I'm just being honest. Like, So I feel like for a lot of people, uh, for me especially, I do love some things that Instagram brings me. And I believe that, um, that freedom of speech is a big part of uh, a, a well-rounded human being. Um, also... I feel like I am inspired by a lot of things that I see happening on Instagram. For example, uh, the New York um, Library has novels, Instagram novels that they're building. Do you know what I mean? So I think I I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, but I do want to say that we have to practice, you know, a sense of critical thinking when it comes to it that I'm trying to figure out as well. And I believe that schools should teach that, by the way. I think that just like financial um, awareness and, you know, critical thinking, I believe that philosophy and social media social media understanding should be a part of you know a, a second graders education and i think that's what we're trying to do with the forever student as well exactly. trying to basically bring whether it's education or these actionable steps that we're talking about just just kind of providing people with this information that they might have not received in school absolutely because the system is the curriculum this is this is the new this is a life curriculum. Right. <laughs> this is 100%. The curriculum for life, you know. I think um, you spoke about burnout. Yeah. And and I think burnout is real. Oh yeah. I I don't think it's something that uh, you know you just hear of. Um I, I think it's something that a lot of people face and they might not know that it's happening to them. Um I think if I'm not mistaken, it's something that you've experienced. Uh, no, I am the I am the president of the Burnout okay. Association. Thank you for, the, for yeah, burnout, and we're not anonymous. Um, okay. So, so uh, basically, burnout. Uh, and I was so happy to read that the World Health Organization actually classified burnout as a true illness. Um, this like three weeks ago, I okay. believe. So, um, burnout is an epidemic. It's 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 an it's an issue and. Uh, the way that it's experienced is, is essentially overworking. And it's a result, a direct result of the discon- the inability to disconnect as a result of the internet and our smartphones and our constant connectivity. So I believe it's a two-pronged approach to it. On the first note, what are the symptoms of burnout? Burnout are, and by the way, I'm really, uh, this is a brand new universe we're tackling because the I was alive and you were alive when Steve Jobs first lifted up that phone and said, this is an iPhone. And our entire lives changed. This is a part of that journey, figuring out how we can learn to disconnect because burnout symptoms are an inability to focus. They actually resemble a lot of the anxiety symptoms, my anxiety symptoms, an inability to focus, um, an inability to actually have downtime. So that means you, you, you will move into insomnia spaces 
or you crash. You go through these like two days of no sleeping and then you'll crash. Uh, an inability to actually, uh, a, a, a deep feeling of guilt when you have to have me time, you know? And one of the things that I believe great business or bosses should never do is I, you don't, if it's your day off, don't tell me where you are. I don't have to know. It's not my response. Like go have a day off, have a mental health day, enjoy. Because if you burn out, the cost of burnout of employees to the company is far more than the cost of actually keeping that employee and having them take a mental health day so that they can come back rejuvenated Mm -hmm. and alive. Um, That the best way to note if you're burning out, if you love your job and you can't find why you're doing your job anymore, that's kind of the beginning of a sense of burnout. And uh, all the symptoms, um, I'll share them with you because there's so many, as with new things that are being defined, it's different for everybody. But I think the word burnout, when I say it, people's synapses fire. They're like, I know what that is. I know what that is. It's that time I work nonstop for 24 hours straight to deliver something that, you know, burnt, it burnt me out. I was done. Um, I think we're beginning to talk about it now in the framework of it's an illness in amongst people because they can't disconnect. But the next discussion we should be having is what's our consequence? If we want real change, what's the true financial consequence to business? When we start to have those conversations as business people, people will see that we actually should be investing in the mental health of our employees because we're not doing that right now. The connection hasn't been made yet. And I want to really lead that connection because the sooner we make that ROI connection, unfortunately, the faster, better change <laughs> will come. How would you go about making that change? I'm debating that every single day. Mm-hmm. I'm, I mean, this is if this could be a possible call out to the universe for anyone who has brilliant ideas about it. Um, I'm more than open to having, you know, uh, panels and discussions about it. But I think the first thing that I believe is to actually begin to statistically analyze how many, uh, you know, people feel burnout in their workplaces. Uh, That the the company culture cannot be one that forces burnout in their employees. It cannot be. Because I believe the cost to the business in training and in, in, in everything, it actually costs the business more to push your to push your workers to burnout. But beyond that, modern millennial businesses need to have a company culture where people feel alive and happy and whole. And I believe if the Arab world had much more of that mentality, then we could have a world that envisioned a better place for all of us. Because right now there are remarkable businesses, but there's so few of us that are running our businesses in a way that's sustainable for the employee in the business. Mm -hmm. We look at the business as sustainable from the margin sometimes, but there's so much more than the margin. Um, there's There's the environmental bottom line, the economic bottom line, and the cultural bottom line. And all of those weigh very, very differently. And I wish we were having more of those conversations as business people. Um, but when you make a packet for for funding, there's no, <laughs> that's <laughs> not discussed. How would you, so, so I think this is really tackling it from an employer uh, standpoint. Yeah. Fr- from the individual standpoint, if there's something that I could do today to... Avoid burnout. I think you can recognize it. I think you've, you've, you've explained that pretty well. But how would I go about just avoiding it. Um, okay, so taking space and not feeling that deep guilt, uh, finding a way to not feel that deep guilt when you need to take space for yourself. And uh, we have a rule at Dukan, and Collective has, you know, has eventually uh, got got its way to this rule as well. Uh, as much as possible, Fridays are a down day. 
they're a day for you to go to the beach, to contemplate life. Um, even though there are not many Muslims in our office, um, I, ta- I, I tell them to take Ramadan hours and if, if not take Ramadan off because the energy in the city is one of beautiful contemplation mm. and one of beautiful thought and, you know, of rejuvenation and of deep, you know, of deep, of deep soul searching. Um, the other thing that I know about people who experience burnout is breakdowns. So if you uh, come home and whether you're a guy or a girl, it's irrelevant. If you find yourself crying by yourself, please, you know, really contemplate whether if you can seek help, you know, because people don't realize that sometimes it manifests burnout and it's the feeling that you simply have no more energy left in your tank. You, it's a, you just need to replenish that and replenish that means taking time alone. If you can't be with yourself, then think about that. Think deeply about why you can't rejuvenate on your own because humans are meant to. We're meant to take time to philosophize and think about the world. But then secondarily, what makes you happy? If you can't find what makes you happy anymore, you need to do a single thing that makes you happy, whether it's watching TV or something that isn't work, yeah. <laughs> like not work related. Um, and then a digital detox. You're going to need to turn your phone off and you're going to need to find a way it's a really challenging thing in the modern, you know, day. But to find a person to take take over your calls, uh, or not your calls, but your emails at least for the for the for the time that you need to detox, because I think part of the anxiety is not letting go and not letting um people like being being like, well, people need me, I I can't finding a way so that you can just say, look, I just need these twenty four hours, please, and I'll be back. Or some people need a week, some people need four days. You'll never really know until, you know, until you, until you begin that journey of understanding it. Um, and a really great uh, thought, you don't need to take one b- big vacation. Treat your weekends mm. like a little vacation. That means turning your phone off. That means relaxing as much as possible. And it also means journaling, being creative, being around happy people. And the same rules apply. No sad songs, no sad movies. No, ne- no negative people. No triggers. No triggers. So I think they're part and parcel of the same universe, anxiety and um, burnout. burnout. But I don't know how they're connected on a medical level. But I definitely know from a personal experience, the tools may be, sorry, the experiences may be different, but the solutions are the same. Yeah, and I think what I really want listeners to take away from this is that it's okay to take time off um, it's okay to take a break. I know we all either work for uh, work for companies or you know work for ourselves, but it's okay to take time off. I think I, I realized this when I was working for Nike that Nike is not going to die if you take a day off. Don't be so self centered yeah. to think that if you take a day off, the whole thing is going to go. It's going to crash down. down. Right? You yeah. know, like if you if you firstly like just understand that and understand that, you know what, uh, my boss is not going to fire me if I take a day off. Like you can't draw all these assumptions and you yeah. just have to put yourself first. And um, as I talk to my more uh, people who I admire, they say, you know, your markers for success, you have to look at what your markers for success are if you want to prevent burnout. And that's something that now I'm reminded of. Um, what do you define as success? So is it that you, your KPIs, you have, so every, uh, for those who might not know, um, 
KPIs are sort of markers that we use to define, to, sorry, <clears throat> I'm coughing. That's okay. Take your time. KPIs are key performance indicators. Sorry. Yes. So KPIs are key performance indicators and we use them to mark whether we've been successful on any given project or a life goal or anything. Um, imagine them as like little mini goals, right? If your KPIs mean you have to work every single day in the workplace, what does that mean about your KPIs with your friends? And what does that mean about your KPIs with your life? So doing that life audit and defining what success is to you, which is actually grounded back to what I was saying in that happy day. If you have that happy day, then you've in essence been successful. Whether you wake up in your billion dollar mansion or you just wake up next to the person you love. Mm -hmm. That's what you've defined as success. And if in that you can't take a day off, then your KPIs are really off. You gotta and you've got to readjust them. Prioritize, reprioritize right. them. You've got to reprioritize. Absolutely. And um, burnout, by the way, if we're going to look at burnout, some people, it helps people to look at burnout as a disease, like an illness that we need to, to manage in one way or another. Um, burnout is, the, is, is truly time that you haven't spent with yourself catching up with you. Wow. If you think about it. Yeah. So if you were to look at it like a bank, you know, you just didn't give yourself enough me time because I find, and my sister, you know, I've had deep conversations with her. She's very, she's yogi, she's a yogi and she's really, you know, a deep contemplator of life. She said, I don't believe that me time and burnout can exist in the same space. So maybe the solution to getting rid of one is to give you more of the other. I think... To that point, people are often afraid to be by themselves. Yes. And this goes back to what we were talking about before. A lot of people think that being by yourself also means you can be on your phone or you can be watching Netflix or you can do things that are not really adding value or, yeah. or are really distracting you from the bigger picture, um, which is something I realized when I was not using my phone or my laptop. Um, but I just sat there and was by myself yeah. with my thoughts. Yeah. And you realize that at that moment, you're going to have to face what's going on in your head yes. instead of you distracting yourself with, it could even be a conversation with a person that could be, a, that could serve as a distraction oh, or completely. it could be, or it could be your, your phone or your laptop or whatever it is. Um, I, there, the, there is a practice as you, I'm sure you know, which is you sit with yourself and you face something and you deal with it. And then you sit with yourself and you face something. A memory arises that makes you angry or sad and then you face it. And you do this over and over again until you're like, yo, you're pretty dope. Yeah, <laughs> you, yeah you, you deal with it. At some point you realize you're actually, my sister, I, God bless her, I love her so much. She's like, Reem, you're all you've got. Yeah. So you better like you. Because if yeah. you don't, and my mom reiterates it, you know, she said, Reem, when we go, you go by yourself. She's like, I take care. My mom takes care of people right before they pass. And she's like, no, 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 you're going. She's like, I can help you stay clean and health uh, as in like, you know, relatively comfortable, but you're going on your own. Yeah. And we all go on our own. So at the end of the day, truly, uh, we should be happy with who we are. Yeah. And maybe all of this is the pursuit of actually being happy with who we are. And again, I think what we're going to do with this show is really provide people with the tools to do so, as well as giving them access to those that can help them do so. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I think with that, I want to transition into a segment that we call Asking for a Friend. Um, I love this segment because basically 
I remember sitting in class and being afraid to ask certain questions because they might yeah. be stupid or whatever it might be, right? And uh, and so this is these are questions from listeners. Um, and the first one is, what's the best advice you've ever gotten? The best advice I've ever gotten is to always honor yourself. Could you elaborate on that? So most of the time, especially as a young Arab, Filipino, woman of color, um, an immigrant, as a person of diaspora, as a person from a home that wasn't so perfect, you don't, you make decisions to keep people happy because there's been so much violence, displacement, abandonment. And the truth is you have to sit with yourself, as we've said earlier, and honor who are you. And that's why I really believe if you honor yourself, once I said, okay, I'm going to honor myself. What do I want here? And it turns out I actually don't like big houses and I actually don't like cars. And I actually don't like, you know, material things. They don't mean much to me, but I love people and I love community. And I love when, when someone creates something that blows my mind. So I began to pursue that and my life changed for, it's not even for the better. I think my life changed other people's lives too. And that's what it is to honor yourself. And so when my brother came to me and said, Reem, I want to do drag in Berlin. I said, do you? (laughs) You know, and when people are completely themselves, like you said, I would like to make a podcast. I said, that's you. Let's do it. That's what makes the world a better place, genuinely. Yeah, that's really, really good advice. Best advice I've ever received. And I think that's the best advice our listeners are going to receive for a while as well. The second question is, what are your biggest daily struggles and how do you deal with them? Um, My daily struggles are time management, organization, because there's a lot of demands. And this is something actually, before you walked in today, Akawi and I were having a conversation about this. And he said, you know, the thing about therapists who get paid to be therapists, he's like, they don't take their work home with them. You hear everybody's problems and you take everyone's problems home with you. Mm. And that's part of the reason I wasn't a good lawyer was because I would take people's problems home. They would torment me refugees and, you know, women, I couldn't let go. And so this is something that I'm working on. (laughs) (laughs) I ain't perfect, but I can tell you, um, you can cut this out, but I'll tell the story just so, Mm. you know, uh, I was, I was working, uh, doing volunteer work at a refugee clinic, which was amazing. And, uh, refugees would come into Canada wanting a better life. And, uh, one day I was sitting at my desk and an Iraqi family appeared, three women. It was the middle of winter in Canada and they were wearing just their abayas and like jeans. I was like, you guys are, you're going to get sick. So we got jackets for them. And I said, uh, in my broken, broken, barely their Arabic, uh, how can I help you? What are you doing here? Their father, the, the woman's husband and her, so it was a mother and two daughters. Her father, their father had passed away and he left them very small amount of money. They used that money to pay a Turkish gentleman to hide them under a bus. And they took that ride to Amman underneath a bus, a 20, it's like a something almost 20 hour ride. I've, I've driven it before. And they went to Amman where someone else smuggled them and they somehow got on a plane and they somehow ended up on my desk. And I said, oh my God. And I just felt the history, my history, Iraqi women, the struggle, the diaspora, the violence. And instead of being, and I can tell the story now because it's happened more than like, it was happened like years, like many years, almost more than a decade ago. I said, I called Omar, my boyfriend. And I was like, I'm bringing people home with me. (laughs) (laughs) 
I was like, I'm bringing people home with me. There is no one. Because I called the shelters and it was winter. So all the shelters were closed. They said, we can give you jackets and we can give you blankets, but we have nowhere for these women to stay. What did he say? And he said, absolutely not. What if they're being followed? What if, This is dangerous. You can't do this. And I was like, oh, okay, bye. And like, this was my nature. It's like, if you opposed me, I would just be like, okay, I'll see you later. And I'll apologize for what I've done, but I was going to do it, right? Called my mom. I'm like, mom extra bedroom. Can you make sure that it's cool? My mom is like, what are you doing? And she's like, Omar called me. (laughs) She was like, we were not bringing these people here. And everybody was, and I couldn't disconnect. So one of my challenges in, in life is to disconnect and to put space and to say, okay, this is, you know, I, cause I become emotionally attached Mm -hmm. to things. And I don't believe that makes me a worse entrepreneur. I think it makes me a better entrepreneur but it also makes me an exhausted entrepreneur who's very prone <laughs> to burnout. You take right? responsibility for things that are not necessarily Exactly. Yours. And so what ended up happening with those women was that they ended up, um, oddly enough, I came, I went to my, there was, the, the refugee clinic was one, was was run by a revolutionary Venezuelan couple and they made some tacos for the, for these women. And as we, they were making the tacos, the girls broke out the back door. Probably somebody was there to pick them up or something and they ran away. And I never knew, I knew their fake names. I never, I wondered if I was ever going to bump into them. They obviously had a plan of some sort and they were in my desk for a temporary moment. Mm. But I just remember like, okay, you can't save everybody. But that's a part of my problem is I think I can. Like I actually think I can save the universe. And how do you, how do you then go against that? Or how do you adapt that behavior to not think that way? Um, I have asked my circle of friends to protect me. Okay. You know, so you'll know from a lot of, from 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 the work, as you work more closely with us, you'll see, uh, you can't get to me through OT or I, they, they protect me because they know that I'm really, mm. if you can get through the defense walls that I have now, um, then I will probably meant to help you, you yeah. know? Because it's not, it's not, I don't have a very wide circle anymore. I used to know, I used to have a very wide circle who I genuinely believed were my nearest and dearest brothers and sisters. And the truth is I can't have that. I can help you and I will do everything I can to facilitate your 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 well-being, but I need to stop it at some point. And setting up those boundaries is part of what I've been learning. You've given others accountability to help you out. A hundred percent. And uh, they are my, uh, my, my counsel, my advisors, and they uh, protect me because I need that protection from myself. You know? I think that's also good advice yeah, to give I others. Think so. Yeah, I think so. It is. Yeah. Now that now now that I mention it, I didn't do it consciously. Yeah. I just did it like I was burning out, and the guys were like, "Okay, that's it. No more, no more people. That's it." And uh, I am that kind of person that will give till I'm mine. I'm my tank is below zero. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's hurt my relationship with Omar. It's hurt my relationship with my mom. And so I'm re now, now it's great, but there were times when it was like, you know, Reem, you have to stop. Yeah. You can't martyr yourself for these causes. It's not going to work. You can't give from an empty cup. Yeah. And Omar says it's a, it's a gas mask theory, like airplane mask theory. They tell you to put it on yourself first before you put it on anyone else. That rings true in my life a lot. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Last question. The most important thing in your life right now the most important thing in my life right now is, can I say two things? Absolutely. Um, my health and fun. Those are the two things. 
my health is paramount. And um, it's taken me years to put myself as the thing because normally as women, we're trained to say, well, my family or my friends. But the truth is, none of that is happening unless you're healthy. So your health first. And actually uh, the wonderful Melinda and Bill Gates, they have this fund of $50 billion donated by the world's greatest entrepreneurs to solve problems of humanity. They didn't solve education problems. They, they solved health problems. They're, they're solving health problems, eradicating polio, eradicating, you know, diseases that can be eradicated because a healthy community is a community that can save itself. And that's the same with people. That's a really good answer. Yeah. Before we say goodbye to you, mm-hmm. um, where can our listeners find you online? So you can find me, um, if you want to talk to me directly, uh, it's at Reem Hamid. I have, I am on Instagram one hour a day. So if that, no, bear with me as I am on there one hour a day. Uh, but you can also listen to, um, you know, the different things I love, uh, which is uh, at Dukkan Show, uh, the podcast, uh, social uh, society and culture podcast that talks about the things that matter to us as third culture kids. And I'm also the host of the Mina Bites Drop, which is the weekly um, source for uh, tech VC and startup news in the Middle East. Perfect. Thank you. Listeners, we hope that you guys got great advice from this episode. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I did and learned a lot about um, anxiety and burnout and basically habits and practices that you can do on a daily basis to make sure that you avoid those things in life. We have another great episode coming up next week. Stay tuned and subscribe if you haven't already. Have a great, great week. Your purpose is within you, but finding it takes time and effort that we highly encourage you to set aside every day. Spend just 15 minutes a day on the things that you love. Don't think you have to change the world in those 15 minutes, but build the habit of consistently doing something that you love every day. And remember, the greatest purpose is found in the simplest things. The second thing is to do a mental and social health audit. Make sure your life's toxicity levels are at an all-time low, whether that's your mental well-being, the people you surround yourself with, just so you can consistently make decisions day in, day out that will steer your life in the right direction. The second topic we discussed was anxiety. We defined it as a heightened sense of uneasiness of things that are and are not real. So how can we deal with it? It was by having internal and external conversations. By internal, we mean you start being very honest with yourself. Keep doing self-audits. Analyze where you're at. And become comfortable spending time by yourself and limiting the things that trigger your anxiety. By external, we mean counseling and therapy. Don't be afraid to seek professional help. Mental health is so incredibly important, and there are plenty of qualified people around you that can help you deal with your anxiety. And finally, we talked about burnout. Reem beautifully defined it as time you haven't spent with yourself catching up with you. You might have an inability to focus or an inability to enjoy time off or feeling guilty when you do so. Some of these steps are very similar to that of dealing with anxiety. For employers, give your employees mental health days and invest in a happy corporate culture. For all our listeners, remember that you can't give from an empty cup. So take space for yourself and disconnect from your job and from your digital world. Also, ask yourself, are you struggling to do something that makes you happy besides your work? Focus on that 15 minutes again. Do something you love. Channel your inner child. Write, read, exercise. Whatever works for you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's Forever Student episode. 
This show is for you, me, and all of us to learn and grow from. If you enjoyed this, please rate the podcast, comment and share with anyone that you believe would benefit from listening to this. I'd love to hear from you, so feel free to reach out to me at Forever Student Show across all social media platforms. Or you can drop us an email at foreverstudent at dukanmedia.com. My name is Stefan Miller, and this podcast is brought to you by Dukan Media. Thank you all, and have a great week. 